0: Do we owe to each other? What do, we, what do we owe to each other? That's the central question or of the of this thematic center of one of my new favorite shows on NBC, The Good Place. Highly recommended. But in reality, this question of moral philosophy was coined by a philosopher named T. M. Scanlon. And he wrote a book on this subject. And in the book he suggests that what we owe to one another is the very best of ourselves. We owe to one another the very best of ourselves for the very best of others. The reason why we owe this to one another is because we are in community with one another. Relationship with one another. Which is to say we all share a common identity which is our humanity. So this moral philosopher, who is to my knowledge not a believer, recognizes that because of our shared heritage in humanity, what we owe to one another is the very best of ourselves for the very best of others. But the church has a lot more in common than just our humanity, don't we? The New Testament regularly defines and likens Christians that are in community with one another, to a family. And the question that we can ask then is, what makes a family unique? What makes it healthy? And the answer is, the ability to live with one another in grace and in truth. Each member of the family working for the greater good of the other. When we think of a healthy family, we think of somebody who is working and living in close proximity and relationship with others for the good of that person. Someone greater than themselves. That's what a healthy family is and does. So when Paul tells the Ephesians that God has called each one of them into a family and into a united community for the sake of the glory of God, which we saw last week, What does he then intend that community do? He intends that the Ephesians strive to live out and maintain that unity in Christ through gospel faithfulness. To say, if Christ has purchased you and made you one, a community and a family who has brought you by adoption into the household of God you are no longer strangers and aliens, but members of that household. You've been unified and have been made one. You must strive to live out and maintain that unity which Christ has secured in gospel faithfulness. It is precisely because we are a family that we must do then the hard work of working for one another, of working for one another's good, for one another's edification, for one another's godliness. We must do this hard work of working for one another's good if we are to serve the true purpose for which we were created as a community, as a church. And the preservation of this unity does indeed require hard work at times. If you've been with us for the past year or two years, you know the need of the hard work that maintains unity and peace in the body of Christ. And this isn't unique only to foundation, but to every church, because of our sinful nature. Unity requires work to serve and to live in and to walk in. So what we owe to each other, then, is the willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of the other. Confronting ourselves and each one of us. So that we can learn what keeps us from God. Removing the obstacles that keep us and hinder us from serving well. In other words, we must practice the work of confrontation with one another. That's what we'll discuss this morning is this hard work of gospel or Christian confrontation. And one of the aims that Paul writes for the church in Ephesus is to... Work for the sake of the unity that Christ has made. Because you are a family, you must walk in a manner worthy of that calling. As members of the household, here's the main idea if you take notes this morning. As members of the household of God, we are called to love and serve one another by confronting sin and other such hindrances to our growth in godliness. And we are to receive and welcome such biblical confrontation with gratitude. As members of the household of God, we are called to love and serve one another by confronting sin and other hindrances to our growth and godliness and to receive and welcome such biblical confrontation with gratitude. Paul instructs the church at Ephesus and us this morning to walk in that same manner. And why is this work of confrontation necessary, as hard and difficult and as messy as it may be? Consider chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing The law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul says in chapter one, God predestined us for adoption. He's called us into relationship with himself through Jesus. And he's brought those whom he has called into community with one another. And the differences that normally would divide us in Christ have been leveled. And in the place of two or three or ten different people, there is actually only one created in Christ, the body of Christ, unified. Paul says this was the purpose for which you have been gathered together in your community and as a church. It's therefore the work of confrontation will be necessary to preserve that unity which Christ secured in his death. It's one thing to desire it, and it's another thing to work for it. I think we're really good at talking about what we want, not so good about working for it. So when we consider Paul's words in chapter 2, 14 through 16, we need to understand that we undermine the gospel We undermine the gospel and the purpose for which Christ died when we fail to confront one another and receive confrontations from others. We choose rather to despise actually what Christ died to create, a community for God and for himself, because we will not welcome confrontation or we will not confront others. And what is this community that Christ has made in his flesh? community really practically is the path that we place ourselves on with others for the sake of confrontation which leads to other graces you're here this morning because god has called you into a community and into a context in which you will flourish and grow because others can walk alongside of you if it wasn't the case we could all have individual churches of just one we could spend time on our couches in the morning reading our Bibles instead of coming together to learn and grow. But a community exists so that we can confront one another in grace and in love, which leads to growth. That's what Christ died to bring us. We must confront one another. Let me give you a definition for the rest of the sermon of what biblical confrontation is so that we understand what we're aiming for. What is biblical confrontation? Biblical confrontation is the loving act of one Christian to another that seeks to identify sin or other important areas for growth by bringing biblical truth to bear on an area of concern. Aimed at the increase of spiritual maturity and godliness and likeness for the glory of God. You read it again. Biblical confrontation is the loving act of one Christian to another that seeks to identify sin and other important areas for growth by bringing biblical truth to bear on an area of concern aimed at the increase of spiritual maturity and godliness and likeness for the glory of God. We can see in Paul's words that's the purpose for which we were brought together. In chapters 3 and 4, he'll tell us that that unity and that coming together and that working of our relationships and in confrontation is meant to glorify God, to magnify his presence and to display the glory of God, not only to each other and to our nations, but to the heavenly places. And beyond that, this unity in the work of confrontation in living out of the reality that Christ has made in his flesh, one new man, is the need to grow in maturity and unity for one another and with one another. And he's given us gifts and the ability to walk in faith to do that well. And so biblical confrontation means that we just simply live with one another for the sake of the others. To borrow from the moral philosopher quoted earlier, to give our very best for the very best of others that's what biblical confrontation is we need to understand though that this is hard maybe you've been in the case where you've been confronted and it wasn't done graciously or lovingly or you didn't accept it readily resisted it and defended yourself or maybe you've tried to confront others and found that you were ill-equipped to do that well or were rebuked or rebutted Confrontation is important to the work of unity which Christ died to preserve. And we need to recognize before we go about confronting others that we ourselves first need to be confronted. Of course, there's no clearer example of universal equality in the Bible than when Paul tells the Romans in chapter 3 that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So, therefore, if we are going to be the sort of community that yields flourishing Christians and service to God and others, we must first acknowledge our own inescapable need of confrontation. Why do we need to be confronted? And why do we place ourselves in a community where we would allow ourselves to be confronted? And why did God save us and bring us into relationship in a church with people who are supposed to lean into us and confront us? Because we need it. Because our sin prohibits us from pursuing unity and needs to be called out. And it needs to be cut out. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore, to be the sort of community that yields fruitfulness and faithfulness and biblical unity and in service to God and to others, we have to acknowledge our need for confrontation. But this willingness to be confronted will come at a price for us. The price is vulnerability and the price is discomfort. It is never comfortable to be confronted. To be called out, even in love and in grace. It always requires vulnerability and humility to welcome and to allow others to speak into our lives and to be confronted. Recognizing then our need for confrontation and then moving purposefully toward one another in love and in letting others into our heads and into our hearts and into our lives is going to be vital then to a healthy family. Although it can be incredibly hard We must understand our own need to be confronted Otherwise we will not confront others well This is an extremely difficult task Why is it so difficult for us to do this? I think C.S. Lewis puts it well He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken and if you want to make sure of keeping intact your heart, you must give to it. You must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable impenetrable irredeemable to love is to be vulnerable do you see that C.S. Lewis is picking up on this idea that Paul describes to the church in Ephesus that he must walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we be called that, that we are to walk in this reality that Christ in himself has broken down the dividing wall of hostility has called us to live in relationship and community and proximity to one another, and where we let each other hear our voice and our thoughts and our hearts and speak into them as we speak into others. If we are called to love one another by virtue of our oneness with each other in Christ, because of the two into one work that Christ accomplishes, if we are called to love one another by virtue of our oneness, with each other in Christ and we are called to live out that oneness through vulnerability and through discomfort welcoming the challenge and the change that it brings through the rhythm of confrontation There are many blessings to being in community which we often extol and preach to others a place where you can belong have friends and deep relationships but those relationships are only helpful and edifying to you when they can be spoken, not only for you, but at times against you, for your good and for God's glory. This requires vulnerability, discomfort. It requires us to acknowledge our own need to be confronted. But secondly, we need to also understand that we are needed to confront We need to confront others. So to that end, we must not only welcome with gratitude any confrontation that aims to work in us and produce in us faithfulness and godliness, but we should also strive to provide that very thing for others. We must confront as well as be confronted. Acknowledge not only that we need people confronting us in truth and in grace, but that they need us to work that for them as well. Now, to be sure, this doesn't mean that every interaction with each other is going to require some sort of moral poking and prodding, the airing of all of our grievances or the grasping for the, the pharisaical straws of our nature. But rather, this means that we are going to always be aiming for the good of other people, for the greater good of God's glory. And our coming, sometimes as a friend, not an adversary, but our coming against one another— is for their good. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. There is such a wound that friends can inflict upon one another that is for our good. And the Bible calls that brother, that friend, that sister, faithful upon the inflicting of that wound. This does what God himself does. Hosea in chapter 6 tells us that God strikes us down. He tears us down in order that he might heal us. In order that he might revive us and build us again. And allow us to be pressed hard into him because of his work. He comes against us in chastisement and discipline and judgment. And sometimes he has to speak and confront us in our sin. But it is done in love as a father to a child. Therefore, we also must confront one another. So healthful and healthy confrontation will always be modeled and motivated by love, both for God and for others. Again, think back to this idea of a family. A healthy confrontation is essential in a family, right? A family couldn't be sustained without some form of confrontation. Sin is, cannot hide for very long in a family. And sin cannot remain in a family who is genuinely committed to one another's good. Case in point, a couple days ago, I made chicken for dinner. Cut it up, gave it to a plate for Kenley to eat. She normally loves chicken. She decides, as I'm in the kitchen, doing something else, that she's going to drop the pieces of chicken behind the couch and pretend like she's eating it so she can get dessert. And she got away with it. I didn't know. I was very impressed. Great job. Here's ice cream. The next day, we're cleaning. Brittany looks behind the couch and sees a pile of chicken on the ground. She says, why is chicken here behind the couch? And immediately I knew, okay, Tinley was deceptive. Sin cannot go Unchallenged and unnoticed in a family. At least because we live in proximity to one another. And my foot's going to step where you hide your chicken, proverbially speaking. She may have gotten away with it for an evening. And there may be times where she gets away with things completely. But sin is not the sort of thing that goes unnoticed in a family who is genuinely committed to one another. Sin comes to the surface... And in a family who loves one another, sin will not remain. It was then incumbent upon me as father and parents to confront Finley because of her sin. And that although she felt like she got away with it, and she got the temporary blessing of dessert that evening, she would no longer be allowed to have dessert for the rest of the week. And that she not only lied to me, but God also knew she was deceptive. And we worked through this idea of confrontation Because sin cannot go unnoticed, cannot be hidden, and will not remain in a family who's genuinely committed to one another. Confrontation really is just a natural act of a family who lives in relationship with one another. It's a way that we keep peace in the family day in and day out. The next day, although she lived with her consequences of no more dessert, it also means that I was able to, since I forgave her following our confrontation, To move toward her in love. This is how the family is able to make peace each day. So how can we then, as a church family, embrace this idea? We also lean in, not out. And by leaning in and not out to one another, into proximity, by allowing our feet to step where we may hide our sin, by leaning in and not out, we will place ourselves in the path of others for our good. Do you see this, the logical consistency when we are in each other's lives? Like a family sin cannot go unnoticed for long? That it will come to the surface that a loving friend or brother will draw it out of you That the Spirit at work in you will bring you to confess it? Sin will not remain and not be hidden. We lean into one another, not out. We place ourselves in the path of others for our good. And we allow the, the water of Christ's fraternal love to flow naturally to our hearts and all of the cracked walls of fatigue and disappointment and discouragement and anger and jealousy and hostility are revived and are restored and love and community results that's the idea of family and of unity that christ has purchased and secured for the church that paul reminds the church in ephesus and us this morning that we walk in so you need to be confronted and I need you to confront me. You need to recognize your need for friends who will wound you and the need to be a friend to graciously wound others. Well, let's get a little practical then. How do we confront one another? This is really the, where the rubber meets the road. How then can we actually confront? I'm going to give you three steps. First starts with Examination. You need to start confrontation with examination. Examination primarily of yourself. Matthew tells us, Jesus tells us in Matthew, that before we come against another brother or sister, we must examine and remove the plank from our own eyes before we point out the speck in another's. Examine yourself to make sure that you are not coming hypocritically, examine your motivations. That this is actually motivated by love for the good of those, per- those people or that person and for the glory of God. Our motivations may seem well-intentioned at in the beginning. But if real motivation, an examination of our motivation reveals that we have actually come because we've been hurt, then our confrontation won't bear much fruit. We also should examine the facts. Sometimes we confront somebody about something that we just don't know very much about. And so we need to seek to understand the situation better. Is this what really happened? Is this truly a sin? Do I really understand the situation? So it takes time to examine ourselves, our motivation, and the situation as it really is. Secondly, we need to take time for estimation. We need to estimate the overall importance of this confrontation. And we need to estimate the unintended consequences. What will be the result of me coming against this person? Even in love, will they receive it well? Are they in a place to hear it? Have I also been equipped to help them be part of the solution? This is the right sort of work. Think about it this way. If you feel you must confront somebody because of a shortcoming... Or personality deficiency. The role of confrontation is not admonishment, but encouragement. Some of us have personalities that need a little bit of love. And a little bit of bearing with. Confrontation is right and biblical in these cases, but it should be done in the form of encouragement. Not in heavy handedness or condemnation. So in your examination, you see that this is really just an issue of someone just maybe being a little brash with their words. Or just a little harsh with the way they've said or done one thing. Encourage that brother or sister to love faithfully and give them biblical ways and they can model it and grow in it. But if, as you've looked at the issue and you've seen that this is actually an important gospel issue, that this is a denial of sound doctrine or a rejection or appreciation of the gospel, then you need to move not in encouragement but in rebuke. And friends, let's not be so naive to think that often we may need rebuke, admonishment, We need to know in our estimation of the issue whether this is something we need to encourage and bear with a brother or sister in or when we need to move swiftly to rebuke a brother and sister for their good and for the gospel's sake. So take time for examination and take time for estimation and then you can move into confrontation. I tried really hard to find another E word but that's – I got the suffix right. Examination and estimation. Remember, these are you. You haven't actually confronted yet. When you actually move to the process of confrontation, there are several ways we can go about it. I have six sub points under this. There may be many. First, you confront privately, not publicly. There are exceptions to this. But often, in our cases where confrontation is needed, we are to confront privately. Not publicly. Think of Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus says that if there's a sin or wrong done from one brother to another, they are to go to that brother. And if that brother still refuses to acknowledge or listen, then you can take two or three others. And if they still continue to not listen, then you bring it before the church. Then it's a public matter. But friends, our confrontation must not be had with other people first or in public first, but with one another, the ones to with whom we need to actually confront. Privately, not publicly. Now there are, of course, exceptions to this. Some sins are publicly done and need to be addressed publicly. But often, even in those situations, the right course of action is to begin to pursue that work privately. Secondly, to do so candidly, not dishonestly. Confront candidly, not dishonestly. We are called to speak the truth in love, the truth in love, which means that when we confront, we don't do it passive aggressively. We don't drop hints and hope that they'll fill in the other parts of it. We speak the truth, the biblical truth, in love, honestly. We don't beat around the bush. And we don't soften the hurt, the offense, or the sin. Because when we, when we try to mitigate that for the sake of maybe our own fear of rejection or not being liked, we actually do a disservice to the person we are aiming to confront. So be candid. Be open. Be transparent. Don't try to be holier than thou or almighty. But be honest. Don't be dishonest. Speak candidly. So privately, candidly, Third. Do so prayerfully, not impulsively. Prayerfully, not impulsively. The Apostle James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This may just simply give you the time to understand the facts of the situation before you confront, and therefore not make a fool of yourself. But often the more we pray over a particular issue and for a particular person, the edges of our confrontation are softened in the good way so that we can bring that confrontation more palatable for those who may hear it. You should move prayerfully. Sometimes this may be easy. You have a relationship where you can speak and say most anything. But sometimes if it's a big enough issue, you can be racked by anxiety. Prayer helps you find the words in the right central idea to bring. Be slow to anger, slow to speak, but quick to hear. Do so prayerfully, not impulsively. Fourth, confront biblically, not ignorantly. You may have opinions and preferences about how things ought to be done, about what's right and wrong. and They may more or less be loosely informed by the Bible. But when you confront another person in love for their good, You must do so knowing that you have Scripture to support you. And if you don't, you'll either lead a person into legalism by trying to bind their consciousness to what you think might be right, or you may sear them off from hearing confrontation ever again. Do so biblically. We must use God's Word as the track by which we confront one another. Think what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. The Word of God is profitable for what? For teaching, reproof, correction, and training in all righteousness. So if you have to correct somebody, you don't do it because of your opinion, of your high taste or preference in doctrine, or in personality tastes. You do it because the Bible has made a clear case for why things must be done. You can teach, correct, reprove, and train. And what's the result of such using of the biblical word? It's righteousness. So don't have your your ignorance show by not quoting the Bible or being led by the Bible, but do so biblically. That's four. Privately, candidly, prayerfully, biblically, fifth, graciously, not disparagingly. Confront graciously and not disparagingly. Paul again will say to the church in Galatians in chapter six that we are to confront with one another, bear one another's burdens, To admonish one another, but he says to do it in gentleness. Friends, you may be right, and the truth may be on your side, but what does Paul say to the Corinthians in chapter thirteen? He says you can have all faith and all knowledge and all prophecy, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. If we don't move in grace and love, not disparagingly but graciously towards our people whom we love to, to to serve, and we want to give this confrontation as a means for their growth. We must do so with gentleness, kindness. This means we're taking into effect the consideration of how they may respond, the particular words that they may respond rightly to. I may speak to one person differently than I speak to another. I may be more quick with Lucas because he's ready to receive me in a particular way than I am perhaps with John. We need to know each other well enough to know how we are to confront one another. That's confronting each other graciously. Sixth, we should do it immediately. Now, this isn't in contradiction to doing prayerfully and not rushing in, but if there is indeed an issue and a sin issue, primarily one that prevents you from having unity in the body of Christ and breaking bread with one another, the Gospels tell us to move quickly to reconcile, to confront, and to make this right. Do so immediately, not slowly. Do so immediately, not slowly. Perhaps if there's a last one, it could be confront purposefully, meaning that you're there not to simply drop confrontation off and then leave, but then to walk alongside that person for their good and their growth. We're not just deliverers of good news or bad news, but we're brothers and sisters in a family. So it's not simply my job to teach and to say and then let you go but to walk alongside of you and we with one another in the growth that we have called and confronted each other to be about. So that's how we confront. Privately, candidly, prayerfully, biblically, graciously, immediately, and purposefully. But we must do so above all in light of the gospel. We must do this in light of the gospel. Remember the whole reason that we are called to confront is because Christ in his flesh that is in the offering of himself as a sacrifice and a substitute for the wrath of God against our sin is the creation of a new person. And when we fail to do so, confront, love, and seek out the good of others, we undermine the very purpose for which Christ created us and the very purpose and reason for which he died. We undermine the work that Christ did in giving his flesh as an offering to God. Christ in his flesh broke down the dividing wall of hostility. he has actually in his flesh overcome the obstacles that keep us from loving and serving one another the fear that he has given us freedom from so that we have no fear of condemnation or reproof because we know he has created brothers and sisters together who would not reject us he has freed us from the sin, dominion over our life where we can actually be free from sin and help others free themselves from sin In fact, Christ himself was hated in order that we could love and then be loved. Do you see how Christ's work actually makes it possible for us to biblically confront and grow with one another in grace and in unity? He allowed himself to experience disunity with the Father because of the wrath of God poured out on him, and hatred by other men who were to worship him but did not welcome him, in order that we may love and love others. He experienced lovelessness so that we could love others. That's what the gospel does. It confronts us in love. It confronts us in unity. It confronts us in purpose in order that we then could confront others. That's the reason that we must confront each other well. Because we have been first confronted. Because Christ himself confronts us we can confront others. Remember, confrontation and confession and acceptance and reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. It is what it means to believe the gospel, is to have our sins and our unrighteousness confronted with the holiness of God, to be at a loss for words and action of what we can do to ever make ourselves right with the Lord again and then seeing God's free and gracious gift in Christ and His life, death, and resurrection that confronts us but offers us then hope and life And godliness. That's how we confront in the heart of the gospel, in light of the gospel, by being motivated by the love that we have experienced, the confrontation we have experienced, the acceptance and the readiness and the goodness of God in our salvation. And when we confront, this is the best part when we confront one another, and godliness prevails, and we are made unified with one another because of our work of confrontation, we become the kind of community that. Is able to break bread with one another because we've confronted well. We are actually reflecting and anticipating the supper of the Lamb and the unity and the consummation we have with Christ. We we sang this this morning. I don't. We didn't plan it, Lucas, but we sang in the brother we have Come the worship song that that we will really break bread with Christ because of His work. We're called to do that now with one another. Preach, love, serve, confront. And we will be with Christ together. So we are modeling, anticipating, and reflecting the consummation, the reconciliation, the the beauty of all things when we come together in unity together because of our confrontation. So friends, as we confront one another in love, we must do it in light of the gospel. Remembering that Christ was confronted so that we confront others. That we ourselves have been confronted by the gospel. Enables us to confront others. And above all, as we confront, we anticipate the consummation of all things. Will we pray? Father, thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross and the confrontation of our sin. There's much that we need to be confronted on. And perhaps even now we are tempted to begin a list of things we're planning to confront other people. Lord, would you just help us to take the steps of examination of our own lives to really truly weigh the importance and significance of some of these things that may not actually need the sort of confrontation we think it does. So that when we confront biblically about the things that are important, they are clear, they are understood, and they are welcomed and received. We thank you for confronting us in our sin. But you did not simply confront us and condemn us, but you offered a hope and an escape from that condemnation. In Christ and in His death and His resurrection, by taking on the disunity of the world and of Your wrath, You preserve for us the unity of the church and our unity with You. We are thankful for all of this, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ.